0: Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino, and we are here with Bob Roll. So for those of you who don't know Bob Roll, some of you see him on uh, when, commentating for the Tour de France, correct? Yes. But Bob, you were one of the first riders from the U.S. to race in the Tour correct? That's
1: true, yeah. First American team in the Tour de France.
0: And you are a Bay Area native.
1: Yeah, grew up in the East Bay, born in Oakland, uh, deep roots in San Francisco, three or four generations. Uh, on my mom's side, and way, way back to the 1800s on my dad's side. So uh, I have a long and uh, not not contentious, but definitely interesting history with the Bay Area.
0: So how many years did you race professionally, both on the road and you also raced professionally off-road?
1: Yeah, 14 years, pro. 14 years. <laughs> Which I could have done the same amount in maybe seven or eight, but I was stubborn. So. <laughs>
0: So what's really, really interesting, and I mean, I know the story, but a lot of people don't know the story of how you discovered racing and also how racing discovered you.
1: Yeah, in the East Bay in those days, this is early 80s, um, it was actually a pretty robust bike racing scene. Um, It was one of the hotbeds of American Cycling. Uh, In those days and just fortuitously happened to grow up there and was riding my bike to get between jobs because the traffic was so bad, which, by the way, has not improved (laughs) in the subsequent 30 plus years. It's maybe even gotten quite a bit worse. I don't I try not to drive anywhere in the area. And that's why I moved to Durango in the first place. It was just like this is not tenable. But uh, in those days, there was a good racing and I was riding my bike to and from work and using BART to get between my jobs, and happened to run across the Berkeley Bike Club, and they're like, do you want to do some rides? Do you want to do some racing? And I was like, yeah, I'll give that a try. And we, why? <laughs> this is a good story, we, the club screened uh, the CBS, I think it was, uh, program of Perry roubaix um, And I said to my club mates, I said, oh, I'm doing that. And that's simultaneously getting dropped on every club ride. <laughs> they like, they <laughs> laughed right in my face. They laughed right in my... I'm like, no, I swear to God, guys, I'm doing that. I'm like 20 years old. I'm like, that's why I'm doing that. Three years later, I was in Paris-Roubaix. And they were screening the, <laughs> the Paris-Roubaix for the club. And there was me, like the only finisher from the 7-Eleven team that year in the in Paris-Roubaix. So... <laughs>
0: That is amazing. I have I have a poster of you at the house that actually you signed for me, uh, of you riding through the mud, it, which is like you're, I would say you're a good two inches above the rim in the mud, <laughs> and everybody of course is riding on the cowl and you. Yeah, that's the mud a, route.
1: That actually is a is a pretty good encapsulation of what our team like, the evolution of a, of the Seven Eleven team. Um, we didn't ever do any recon. We Every corner was an adventure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> unlike now, which everything is. Uh, unlike now everybody
1: the, a lot of Sudal, they did the cobbles for Tour of Flanders yesterday, and we're here like we were at the New Year's. So, first team ride cobbles from Tour of Flanders, just so they can preview it. We every single time we did a race, no American. Except for Greg LeMond, who wasn't talking to us. <laughs> just kidding. Don't, don't write in. <laughs> who was busy being a superstar. Uh, so every, we were we were just like, oh, Perry Roubaix, yeah, we'll do that. And then and that's why I was in the mud in that uh, uh, picture that Graham Watson took. Because I saw an opportunity to pass a lot of the group. I'm like, oh, I'm moving up. And I came around the corner, and I'm like, ah!
0: You're, you're, did, did you I, move up at all?
1: I did. I did, but... <laughs> And I was lucky enough not to crash, but every other team had done the reconnaissance and they knew that to avoid that. So not knowing that that was, you know, one of those lucky moments uh, that lives in posterity. And it's a good shot. It's a really good shot. That That's a great in. shot. I and mean, yeah. just
0: like that look of determination that you had on your face and it's like, you can see that everybody is just trying to stay on track, try to stay out of that rut. And there you are center in the middle of it, <laughs> choosing that you're going to get through no matter what. I am going to make it. That's exactly what happened. But, you know, I think like what you're saying right now, which is very interesting to me, is that you're talking about the recon and the teams. I mean, you guys really didn't have a huge budget to even do recon. No,
1: right? it was not. It was, you know, it was none of that. We and didn't. you
0: had a team of what I look at as, like, I look at it as, you know, when I was Coming up as a kid and, and you know, I was skateboarding and cycling, it's like I remember watching you guys. You know, it's kind of funny that you're my neighbor now, but you know, <laughs> it, it's funny to me to like look and see who everybody was. And in your teammates, you know, you had Chris Carmichael, Finney.
1: Yeah, Davis Finney, yeah. Davis Finney, Ron Kiefel and Jeff Pierce, and I mean Steve Bauer and Andy Hampston and Roy are like really very talented group of guys. And that's it's, no joke. I mean it's no, that's it no was, joke.
0: You guys were the pinnacle and the godfathers of European cycling. You know, going to first to go yeah. to... And I don't say that because of your age. I say that because you really inspired so many people to get on the bike and take that chance to go.
1: Yeah, it was... You uh, opened the doors. It was the interesting times. It was. And that would have never happened without the, the, the talent, just the God-given talent that that group of guys has. Uh, and that's... Uh, something that I think about a lot, um, because now the, the, the knowledge, like you could be from anywhere in the world and just go on the internet and learn enough about professional racing to become a pro. You can look up aerodynamics, uh, FTP diet, uh, strength versus race, uh, weight optimization. You could watch every mile of every race on the whole calendar. You could grow up in Antarctica and become a professional bike racer if you have the talent. You would probably
0: be really good at like the super cold days and the shitty weather days. But I don't know about the hot days. You could ride. No, you (laughs) might.
1: Yeah. In the middle of the tour, you might be dying in the mountains. But but we didn't have any of that. So you can only imagine the difference and the talent required and the determination, like you said, for that group of guys to go over there, forget about everything, sacrifice everything, uh, and believe that it was possible. And it's been, you know, it's stuck with me. It's been a real honor. And uh, I got to tell you, without my teammates, that would have never happened. Without that specific group of guys, don't think that it would have ever happened for us. Because we were actually dedicated to each other's well-being.
0: You guys are all still friends.
1: Yeah. We're the only team from that era that has uh, a reunion. (laughs) Really? And every couple of years, we all get together somewhere, you know. Uh, and do some rides and tell the stories. Now, believe me, no other team is doing that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you guys set a precedent. You were there as a group. Yeah. You guys celebrated together. You celebrated failure. You celebrated yeah. success, all with a smile. Yeah. And I think that that is different. Because I think you're it's right. Such yeah. a big, it's such a big dollar game. Yeah. And you know, if I may ask, you know, you can tell me to pound sand if you want to, but. A salary then compared to a salary now is astronomical difference, yeah, correct?
1: Yeah, there was very, there was, yeah, it was very, there's no retirement money. Nobody. Not I mean, the, you had- Not the best bikes, guy. Your bikes
0: were taken care of, your transportation. Yeah. Um, two to a room, maybe three, depending on the room.
1: Two to two or three guys. And- yeah.
0: um, did you guys have this? There was no big giant tour buses. No, we didn't
1: show. have the buses. We had little sedans, two sedans. One of the guys had to drive one of the cars. <laughs>
0: one of the teammates had to So talk about, okay, so you just finished a day at the tour. You yeah. just finished out the Do
1: quest. 250K stage, and blazing how hot. How
0: did you guys decide who was going to drive? Did you guys do rock, paper, scissors? I usually,
1: I did a lot of the driving. <laughs> to torture my teammates some more. <laughs>
0: Rock, paper, scissors, Bob wins. Oh, God, he's driving.
1: Yeah, oh, God. (laughs) I don't want to drive, but I don't really want Bob Key to drive. Well, all right. (laughs) Maybe we'll survive.
0: (laughs) So that really also, I mean, really opens up a lot of people's eyes to hear things like that. I mean, I think now when you look at the bigger picture of things, the instant perception is, you know, oh, man, they must have had everything taken care of, catered meals. But now it's like. We
1: did the most with what we had. You know, and our staff was very dedicated. Um, and if you were to multiply our staff by three people each, you'd it, have been, you know, world-class. But there was just, it wasn't, the sport wasn't like that. In and were days. all
0: the teams at that time like that? or
1: It was some teams that were more, you know, you know, better funded. Um, more, obviously, more local. You know, the teams of Paul Coakley and Peter Post and Jan Ross, they had maybe a little bit more resources, way more knowledge, obviously, because nobody had done it before. Um, but I don't feel like we were at a big disadvantage personnel wise. The, the, our staff was so good and so dedicated, and we had so much passion for what we were doing that it made up for whatever we were lacking in shortfalls in money. Or- yeah. Resource the
0: fun that you guys had. I mean, we pic- nobody the,
1: had more fun than we the did. The outtake
0: pictures that I've seen. I mean, <laughs> I've got a picture of you with the bicycle glasses that somebody sent me. I mean, the fun that you guys were having. It's I showed parent. up to a
1: race uh, to a stage in the tour wearing oh. those, and you can only imagine if we had a sunglass sponsor in those
0: days, you would have been screwed. <laughs> but it's, but that to me is like that embodies what to me cycling's about. There's there's a form of individualism yeah. as the, at right. the same time, there, it's a team. Yeah, You all work together, but yet you're allowed to be who you are.
1: Yeah, And I Absolutely. think
0: that's what was is really special about it. I mean, everybody has their specialty, everybody has their right. job. You know, it's like maybe it's your day to, that they're gonna let you rip it and yeah. go for it, or maybe it's the day that you had to help somebody else. And I think it was so apparent in all the footage and all the videos and all the images and watching as a kid, watching those races and seeing you guys were having fun, no matter what, and that to me was really cool.
1: It was, it's funny, like, if you look at the 24 hours you have as a bike racer, um, what you do with those, and you sleep eight or nine, and then you race for five, six, or seven, that doesn't give you that much time, and guys now, like, they look at their files, how much they weigh, their hydration, what their watts were like during the race. We didn't have any of that. All that time we spent telling stories, (laughs) about about what happened and i ruled the roost in the storytelling believe me so our dinner conversations people the other teams would look at us they were just like longingly look across the dining room like those guys haven't won a race in three months why are they laughing so hard like they they are having the best time and and after a couple years all of the european guys came over like oh I'd love to be on your team. It looks like so. Much fun. I'm like, because well, they were probably getting the beat down. Yeah. Oh yeah. You can have a potato for dinner. Yeah. If they didn't win, no dessert, no talking. I'm like, and that's ninety percent of the guys every day. So, you know, so when you funny. when you
0: look at your experience um, then, right for yeah. racing, and you're looking at it now, do you? And you don't have to answer this because it could shoot you in the foot, but. Do you feel that it's lost that luster of, of fun and love and it's so it's gotten to be so technical and so number driven that and like you and I have talked about this in the past and how much fun certain writers are always having fun and you can see it and but do you feel that it's lost some of that luster and it's all about the win, the money and the numbers?
1: There's less there's fewer moments of that. That's for sure. But there's always always guys. That are outside, you know, of the norm. And Peter Sagan is a great example of
0: a guy Peter Sagan,
1: having yeah. fun. And without the fun, it, it, he wouldn't. And he's so talented; he can have fun and still win the biggest races.
0: Naturally talented, yeah. having fun. Like, like for instance, I think uh, last year, SUP coming out of nowhere. Yeah,
1: just that was great. Blowing
0: everybody's doors off. That was awesome. That was awesome. He did it with a smile on his face. Yeah, he's having suffering a good time with a smile. Yeah, and he and to me, that is that love of the sport. Yeah. And I think, I, I love watching the tour. I wake up every single year. I mean, you and I text during it, live, which I know you're probably not supposed to.
1: Don't tell my boss.
0: <laughs> That's
1: during the commercial break.
0: Tatiana's like, stop texting Bobby. <laughs> he's working. I'm like, no, we're texting. this is a stupid. And just, my son's laughing at it. Like, he's the one who wakes me up first thing in the morning to come and watch it. Nice. Because, you know, it is exciting. There is still that love and and I mean, the scenery, the the whole experience. And I mean, you've done multiple different races throughout Europe, not only commentating, but racing. How did this love of food and wine start to come about? Was that when you were racing for Seven Eleven, 11 when you were living there, or when you were traveling through?
1: It's funny, my parents had a real appreciation for gourmet food. And I think my dad was probably the first, at least in the East Bay, one of the very first people to appreciate uh, the famous wine regions and we had bottles of burgundy and starting in the 1960s you know he he was a bit of a francophile so he loved you know he was just loved french culture and uh, and and my mom loved the cuisine and uh, you know did, took cooking classes and and you know berkeley oakland san francisco oh, yeah. was a good place to be if you had those sort of uh, pursuits. Um, So for me, (laughs) there was an interval of time when I thought whatever my parents were doing was totally uncool. I was wrong about that. Of course, every kid. Every every kid, kid. right? (laughs) I was wrong about that. So, And it's funny, it took me until after I was not racing anymore to appreciate what they were into, what they thought was of value. And it turns out that it's pretty cool. <laughs> this so is actually water
0: pouring, not wine. This <laughs> is water.
1: Subsequently, uh, I've totally gotten into, you know, fine dining and good wine, and it just—it's a furthering of the conversations you would normally have at a, din- a dinner table. Um, so when we're traveling and we do, you know, seven to eight mm-hmm. hours on the mic. For covering the races, then it's like dinner time and the stories come out and it's we have such a great crew now at the tour that it's just been a sort of extension of my childhood <laughs> my whole life. So now Yancy tells stories and Christian tells stories and Philip Paul, Paul, sadly, no more stories. Uh, we'll be telling the previous 32 years of stories for the rest of the time that Paul generated by himself. And so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but... It's just a great, a great posse of guys, and uh, you know the Bay Area, to be honest, was a good place to grow up, if, and still is, if you're into that sort of thing. Which I think is, you know, some of the hallmarks of a good life, of good living.
0: Well, I mean, if you think about it, you just touched on two really huge components of the Bay Area. You have, well, it's the the birthplace of mountain biking, right? Cycling hotbed, brilliant food, and. Napa, Sonoma wine. Yeah. I mean, you're like surrounded by it. I mean, we are basically in. I like to call it mini Europe, where everybody <laughs> speaks English. <laughs> sometimes, just depends on where you are for the day. And yeah. and I think that that's what makes it great. Like, just like when you're in Europe, you can go from you know country to country pretty quickly. Here, you can go from neighborhood to neighborhood and get different foods from all over the world. No, it's all. Awesome. And I think that's what makes it so special. It's a similar growing climate. It's mm-hmm. you know you can go skiing in four hours, or yeah. you can the surfing, you know, right down the street and yeah. I think that's what makes it pretty and Napa and Sonoma
1: is just a phenomenal part of the country. I just absolutely love it up there. And, and the riding's awesome. The riding is from, is 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 world class and all the wineries and the food is yeah, it's just it is really amazing and you know to, to ride hard you get hungry and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the right place. For... It's the right place for that. <laughs>
0: So how did you make, a lot of people don't know, I know because I was actually from Rhode Island and you rode for ProFlex, which is a Rhode Island based company. That's right. And I remember you showed up on a motorcycle with your ProFlex on the back and did a race (laughs) in Vermont that I was at. And I was like, holy shit. That's Bob Roll. How the hell did he get here on a motorcycle? I thought he lived in Durango. <laughs> we were all shocked that you were there. It was my first official real the mountain pro, bike. The pro flexers had the that, pro so flex.
1: I thought it would be a good uh, like publicity stunt.
0: Yeah, you showed up, and that was like <laughs> the, the. I mean, that was like the first like crazy fork with the elastomer. It started yes. with a stem, and then it went to the elastomer yes, the bumper so. on the fork, and it had the rear suspension elastomer. Yeah. it was but one
1: like, of the first full suspension mountain bikes to be raced on World Cups and Norbis.
0: And they, I mean, they were good bikes. There was a lot of great people out there. Solid bikes, yeah. And, you know, we used to, I used to go to the factory. I mean, I had Mm -hmm. Fat Chance and we had, uh, those guys were up there in in Massachusetts. And it was such an interesting thing growing up in New England because it's a totally different style of cycling. We didn't, road cycling wasn't as big there, Uh, for me at least. It was all about the mountain biking and the single track and the rock and the normally and It's rough riding. It's active. very technical. It's very technical really mountain bike riding. Thrilling. Lots of poison ivy. Um, you can ride all throughout like Vermont, and New Hampshire. I mean, the riding's incredible, right? And how did you make that transition? Is it because you were living in, in Durango and it, you were surrounded by it, or what made you switch and say, you know what, I'm just going to suffer in the dirt now? Um, I
1: I felt like I had done the I had you know done the maximum and yeah. road racing that that uh, i set out to do. And what year was this again? This is 92. Okay. So it turned pro 85. So seven years on the road and then seven years on the mountain bike. And I, I wanted to, you know, do something new. I was burnt out, honestly. Uh, and it was, you know, there was a lot of good times. There were a lot of very arduous, tough times. And we had like eight, nine guys on the team over there. So we had to do every single race. But we have one week Tour of Flanders, Gent Way going to pay Roubaix.
0: <laughs> so this is at a time let, let, And let's... then
1: the next week, Flesh alone, Amstel Gold, and Liege bastogne Liege. And then straight to Tour of Romandy, and then Tour of Italy, then Tour of it was a murderous schedule. So and your
0: team number, how many was on how many riders were on seven eleven at that time?
1: I mean I it probably, you know we had two programs going. One okay. for North America So that was five, six, seven, eight guys, and one in Europe.
0: So the Europe guys would only race in Europe, not in the U.S. Well, we would, you know. Would you float people back and forth? Yeah, we
1: would definitely do that. But we had, you know, we started Ghent. We Eric Eric Hyden had to fly. He was going to medical school at Stanford. We only had five guys. They wouldn't let us start. He had to fly. (laughs) To Brussels, drive to Ghent, sign in. Just sign in. Get his race number drive back to the airport, fly back. <laughs> and he didn't even race. Didn't even race. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we couldn't have started getting wave of them. And Ron Kiefel got third. See, that's amazing. See, that's like, the European teams are like, these guys are from a different planet. They're like, California, like, where is that? It was like like Columbus going you know, to the edge of the flat world. So... It, it, it was <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to describe like how logistically impossible it was what we did but you know we wanted to we wanted to do that and so you know the logistics is a big part of cycling unlike any other sport not just the race itself the with, getting
0: ready the training yeah all
1: everything. of that stuff all, all all of that stuff it's a commitment yeah, it's a definitely commitment. And you can't do that unless you're crazy about it.
0: And maybe a little, little crazy. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think I, there's something about, you know, it's like, if there's something about suffering. Yeah. That in cycling, I think, is it's it's part that you have to embrace, right? And I think, Absolutely. Um, you know, I remember the first time we met, and it was in Durango, and I was staying, camping. At John Bailey's place, I had just finished Montezuma's Revenge on a single speed. And John Bailey and I were going into town to get something to eat. And you were riding down the street with your daughter. And John introduced me to you and he told you that I had just finished Montezuma's and the look on your face was of sheer like, are you dumb? <laughs> and I remember your daughter called me a knacker. <laughs> I will never, she was like, you are a knacker. <laughs> And I looked at Bailey, and I was like, what the hell's a knacker? I was like, I'm sure that's some kid word I don't know yet. You know, and it was, it was pretty funny because you it was, It was such an interesting time because it was, I was in between races at that point. I just finished doing Montezuma's Revenge. I was in Durango because they had the World Cup there that weekend. Uh-huh. And I was checking out the course and hanging out with Bailey. And then I was heading back to Leadville to do the Leadville 100 on a single speed. And Bailey was telling you that, and, and you just looked at me like, you're doing what on a single speed, and why? Yes. And, you know, it was a situation in time where the suffer was fun. Yeah. It still is, but I rode a single speed because I'm dyslexic, and I couldn't shift properly, <laughs> and nothing could break except for me. So I had nothing to blame other than myself
1: i mean suffering is suffering's co- powerful yeah, right? it's the coin of the realm that's what bike racing's about, and it's a you know the opioid epidemic we yes. have it people don't they have lost this this sort of basic value in that and, and and if you don't have that, it's impossible to be a bike racer and uh you don't necessarily need to you know go through that all the time, but there's moments when you need to moments. You absolutely that's an essential, that's as important as air in your tires. And, uh, and bike racing brings that out in, in people. And, uh, you know, you can make up a little bit, your ability to suffer for, you know, your VO two max a little bit, a few percentage points, but when you get to the very top of the pyramid, that's the difference between, you know, Fifth through twentieth, and first through fifth in the Tour de France and the Giro and the Vuelta. Um, so it's it's intriguing to watch people, men and women, go through that, and it's bike racing brings that out better than anything. <laughs> and if you're doing a twenty-four hour mountain bike race on a single speed, like for me, two and a half hours was plenty. And I'm like, and you told me like, and I'm like, it's how long? <laughs> And you can't shift. And I told you, I remember, this is why Ruby called you a knacker. I said, the derailleur came after the single speed. That's what evolution is. And you're like, you didn't explain the whole reason, the whole (laughs) dyslexia. But I was like, I looked at Ruby and Ruby's like, you're a knacker. (laughs) Which was an expression that the British cyclists used to be knackered which is in the slaughterhouse when they clobber an animal. They, that's, uh, you knacker them. They,
0: it's only how many years later that I finally figured out.
1: I'm, I'm glad knackered. we could uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we could shed some light on that expression. <laughs> Blammo. So when the Brits would say, I'm knackered, mate. That meant, David, that was like almost lights out. And that's yes. when you go into the pain case.
0: And, there is and a find moment. out who you are. That's true. And I think that is a really powerful moment right? Like mm-hmm. 24 hour racing, we call it the witching hour and it's around three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's when you yeah. like, I've seen spaceships. I've come, <laughs> I've come back into, I've come back into laps. And I was, I told my wife, I was like, I, I saw the aliens. They're coming. She was like, okay, here's some food. she food in me. And she just pushed me back. She's like, I don't want to have this conversation with you. Go. And you find out who you really are. You yeah. push through those moments. And once you get to the other side, it's not that long to get to the other side. That moment switches, you get through that pain moment and then you find out what you really have left. Yeah. Because you know it's it's you've got to go.
1: Yeah. It's it's uh it's it's an it, it's it people some people don't like that and they get they are exposed to it one time and quit the sport for
0: no, and, in anything it's I think it's also the fear of the unknown. They're yeah. scared of what could happen. Yeah. What could possibly happen? Maybe you'll fall down, maybe you'll get up. But right. I think the measure of our success is how we learn to deal with the problem. I yeah. just look at that, that pain cave as a problem. How do I get past it? You know? I yeah. mean, you, you would get up in the morning, you'd do 225K, go to bed, get up and do it again. Like I can't even fathom that concept of doing that over and over. And
1: there over. is a lot of hard work to, to have those epiphanous moments. You don't just think, okay, I'm going to do Milano San Remo, and on the Pojo, I'm going to go deep into, the, you know, the outer stratosphere of suffering. That's just not. It, you have to sneak up on it for, <laughs> for weeks and months and years, and then, uh, I mean, that's an extreme example. You know, 300 kilometer, you know, classic race in the springtime when the weather can be bad, but um, everybody can push themselves beyond what they think. They're capable of. Almost everybody can do that.
0: What was your?
1: And in cycling, requires that you have to do that every day, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost every day.
0: <laughs> of all the classics that you raced, what's your favorite that you raced, and what's your favorite to commentate mm-hmm. now?
1: Yeah, I I loved Liège best on Liège when I was racing, uh, the, and physiologically those hard two three. Four-kilometer climbs that came that come very frequently and adds up to a tremendous amount of climbing. But I love liege on liege Crap weather, vicious field, really hard. Two hundred um, uh, and eighty kilometers and crosswinds and just vicious. And I would feel bad for two hundred and fifty k's, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, now I'm okay, let's go, guys. And if I was still anywhere near. <laughs> front of the group it it, uh it was fun and commentating that's a good question Uh, uh, you know classic wise probably perry-roubaix is the best one to commentate on um grand tour tour de france man it's like man it's just so much drama and the teams are much more willing to or they have enough resources to be able to get those stories to us so we can share them the tour because of that you get a real if you watch the whole tour and you have never seen if you watch our coverage of the tour and you've never seen a bike race the first day you'll be like it's just you know it's it's like a herd of buffalo painted in rainbow colors coming at me at a million miles an hour. I think that's the best description I've ever heard. <laughs> I love that. And you're just like, what? But if you listen, and in three weeks, you will know, you will know so much about the sport because of the resources we have, because it's so, so big, and the team's willingness to tell us, okay, what's this guy gone through today? Who, who's not well? And the crashes, and you see the guy bandaged from head to toe. He looks like a mummy the next day.
0: That's brutal.
1: It's brutal. It's grim. Um, and you you will, you will learn our sport. So I love working on the tour. I love it. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's the best three weeks professionally of the year.
0: I mean, I have, I think when a lot of people ask me, they're like, oh man, are you, watching, are you watching basketball? Are you watching baseball? I'm like, no, I only watch one sport. And they're like, how do you watch cycling? I'm like, well, how do you watch basketball? I'm like, how do you watch football? Football's dudes in tight pants jumping on each other, grunting. I don't understand it. And they're like, well, you guys on bikes ride around in tight pants. I'm like, dude, it's a totally different sport. There's no negating each other's sport. I'm not saying no, of course one, not. Is diff- one is better than the other. Yeah. I just enjoy the chess aspect. I think that cycling is almost like chess in a way. Absolutely. It's all about your moves. It's all about pre-planning. But it's all about getting ready, the thought process, the being able to go into the hurt cave and how long can you stay in the hurt cave. But watching the tour every year, there's so much to see and so much to learn. I mean, there's technology, there's equipment changes, there's aerodynamics, there's new clothing materials. I mean, every year there's something new, right? You guys are always sharing new stuff. But I think for me, the classics are always important. I think that is my special place. Like, Perry roubaix lands on my birthday every few years. That's why, you know, two years ago, I reached out to you, and I went and rode the Perry roubaix Sportif the day before. And you reached out to Paul, and thank you you know, for doing that. And he got us into the VIP area, and we literally stood on, on the, the side of the man. velodrome. That's awesome. I mean, Easton was standing next to Stuart O'Grady. I was watching Jonathan Vaughters pull his hair out. Literally, I mean, he had <laughs> clumps of his hair in his hand <laughs> that year because his guy was in the top three. But I was watching... You know, watching that moment from after riding it the day before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I went into that event not in the best of shape. I was too heavy. I had just spent a week in London and a week in Paris eating. And I get there and I'm too heavy. And my buddy Terry Curley drags my fat butt the whole way. And you really realize how fast and how hard it is when you're riding on those cobbles, like riding through the Ehrenberg Forest to look to the left. They every year have the annual tractor drag where they grind up all the grass so nobody can ride on the grass on the side of the road, right? They don't want anybody to be able to ride on something smooth. They want you to suffer through the middle. (laughs) And it is insane. Like riding it the day before, then watching them come through in the same spot the next day. I mean, I was going full gas, you know, you start as you're going to Nuremberg Forest, as you know, you've got a nice lead up, it's all smooth. You give it everything you got, get on those cobbles and you're going, and all it takes is one person in front of you to stumble, slow down, you're done. Yeah. You're over. All of that moment, all that gain you think you're making comes to a screeching halt. And you gotta start it all over again. Because the faster yeah. you go, the more you float. The right. The slower you go.
1: Yeah, it's,
0: it's literally like going 10 rounds with Mike Tyson to your undercarriage, <laughs> right? I mean, there's no other way to explain riding It mauls your junk, yeah. It mauls your junk. I mean, I don't care how much chamois butter or <laughs> DZ's nuts you put under there, or how many, like, it's brutal. It's brutal on bikes. It's brutal on you. Yeah. And that and you, event. You, you bring
1: up a good point that you can actually, in cycling, you can ride the climbs, that they do in the tour. You can ride the cobbles. You can
0: be whatever you, you want.
1: You can go up the pojo and see the graffiti from the yeah. day before, and it's no other sports like that.
0: That's what I, That was the other great thing about cycling, is that you can reach out and say hello. Yeah. Whereas in other professional sports, you're kept away, you're shielded, where a lot of the athletes in cycling really want to communicate yeah. with the next generation. They want to spend time. Like, yeah. you know, what, last time uh, Tour of California came through, we went over, and I introduced my son to Davis, and I introduced my son to Tyler, Vinny, you know, uh, and, and and being able to introduce him to all these people and him be excited about what the sport is and talk to them and see that they are putting in the effort and they are nice people, that's a cool component because absolutely. these kids can reach their heroes, can reach professional athletes and talk to them and get some insight. Yeah. Whereas a lot of other sports, all people do is clamor for a signature and. You're not
1: allowed yeah the, the the interplay between the 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 fans and the racers is yeah it, and you can be basically in the middle of the 50 yard line at the Super Bowl <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which other sports would you would it's just not possible, but in cycling you're like when those critical moments happen, you can actually be standing right there. It's, and it's a, there's counts. nothing like it. There's That's nothing like I mean, That's a big part of the allure of all of the big races. I loved it. I mean, yeah.
0: standing in the Ehrenberg Forest, walking over and having these guys grill sausage. Yeah. Right? Right before that whole area, there's people grilling sausage, people selling historical memorabilia, people selling team cycling cards. And then you had a drag queen farm dance show going <laughs> on and then somebody selling frites and special beer that was specifically made for Perry Roubaix and then you run back to this vehicle and then you follow it along the highway all the way back into town like but after riding it the day before you know i I, whole holding respect like I don't yell at the tv anymore (laughs) go faster because I know they can't go any faster (laughs) my son would be like stop yelling at them dad they can't hear you you're an idiot (laughs) you're a knucklehead dad they can't hear you they're not going to go any faster I'm like now, after riding it, I'm like, God, those guys are going so bloody fast. It's, 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 and it's amazing. The tour is the next, the one thing that I've yet to, to be at. And you and I have talked about doing something there together for, I don't know, the past five years. We've talked about doing something, whether it's riding and eating and, you know, that is the next big viewing. I got to go. All right. Anytime. Soon, I hope so tell me a little bit about your mountain biking and what that was like because we kind of veered off yeah
1: we did go a circuitous route back to it yeah i I, you know it was huge in those days it was massive norba norba the norbas had fifty thousand spectators you know and the world cups you know that much and more um and so it was really thrilling to be racing in those days and and you know, Tinker, Juarez, and Ned Overan, and John Tomac, and Julie Furtado, and Ruthie Mathis, and Susan DiMattei, um, they were on top of the world, uh, so it was very fun times, and it was a lot of sponsorship, um, it was very vibrant, and, and, uh, not lucrative, but most, cer- most certainly, you know, solid, I made way more money racing mountain bikes than I made on the road, um. And so, you know, it allowed me to buy a house in Durango, Colorado. So that, I was...
0: Cheers to that. I know.
1: I was pretty stoked. <laughs> so I could bring my daughter home from the hospital to a, to a house. <laughs> <laughs> my name was on the deed. So, <laughs> in the courthouse. <laughs> uh, so that was a big part of the incentive for me. But physically, it was a real challenge for me to transition, you know, in my early 30s. Uh, from road racing, which is a very different discipline, to mountain biking.
0: Is it the technical aspect that was really
1: The starts, like, you go from 0 to 100 in the full first board, 50 yards. Sprint, yeah. It's a full-blown sprint. And, the, you know, 280-kilometer classic, you go hard, but you're not going, like, wide open, full gas, which is what I was used to. An eight-hour race, now you're doing two hours, and the first 50 yards are the hardest of the whole race. I was like, where'd everybody go? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you, and then you get to the first single track, of course, there's the giant pileup. So then you're five minutes behind. And if you don't do that, you can't compete.
0: You can't get in. Yeah, it's you, getting the whole shot.
1: Yeah, the whole shot is huge. Top five. And you, you watch now, it's like 100, from 100 guys down to three. And it's like, oh, gosh, if you're not one of those guys, it's, you're going to struggle all day. So that was a big transition physically. Just the effort—you go from making no watts to the maximum watts you're capable of in the first hundred yards.
0: But this—let's throw this out there—you didn't have watt meters then.
1: No, but you know, like let's say effort. And a classic is like a long fuse to a giant keg of dynamite at the end of it. The last 50 k's of a classic is just pure mayhem. But the previous 230 k's it's just like this long fuse just warming up and uh so that took me a long time and the actual the technical you know handling your bike especially first time i went east to where you grew up gnarly i was like this is impossible you can't ride that i would look down these trails i'm like i can't do that and then i will watch you guys you know come
0: flying down i'm like
1: that took me four or five years to be and, able to do that. And
0: think the majority of them at that point were riding rigid forks. Uh,
1: there was a lot of, I mean, I think everybody was on a front fork at least, but twenty six inch front fork, but with like one and a half inches of travel. Yeah, one and a half inches <laughs> and, uh, of travel. Uh, and cantilever brakes. Yeah, hardtail. Can't <laughs> Five speeds, you know, like Ugly. if you're lucky. <laughs> oh, brutal. So it, the, the bikes were not that advanced, uh, but the the riders were. The riders were so... Like Tinker, Johnny T, Ned. Unreal. I mean,
0: oh my God. Johnny like, T was also a road transition, right? No. He, he started, started
1: BMXing. He started as a BMX racer. But he
0: raced on the road as well.
1: He did. He came uh, maybe a halfway through his mountain bike racing career. He was already a superstar mountain bike racer when he started racing for...
0: I always go, For some reason, I thought he started one and switched. No.
1: no he grew up... BMXing in in Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. Crazy. So he his bike handling skills, even to this day, are phenomenal. I mean, I I, I rode with them maybe a couple of summers ago in uh, Cortez, Colorado at Phil's Phil's World, mm-hmm. and I'm like,
0: oh,
1: this oh, oh. <laughs> watch. He's like, launching these huge jumps. And I'm like, Johnny, and he's like, what do they call it when they flatten
0: it out, tabletop? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't do those things. (laughs) I don't either. I don't even know what they're called. I have enough trouble just keeping the rubber part down on the road, let alone doing jumps.
1: So technically, it was a long transition. And to conserve your energy, you have to be smooth to be competitive against the very best guys. And you watch Nino Schurter now, uh, or Kate Courtney, you're like, oh my God. And you look at the trail, you're like, that's all rock. And he's just like... Like the Jetsons, just flying. I'm like, that's brilliant. That's beautiful. Love it. But it took me a long time to just be competent enough. I wasn't completely exhausted at the bottom of each climb. That took a long time, which I didn't really count on. But I was so stubborn. (laughs) I just kept plowing away at it till I was at least good enough to get close to a podium in the Norba. And that was really gratifying, actually. And as gratifying as, you know, being on some of the first American teams to do the big races in Europe, uh, but that was like, that was more personal gratification. There's less of a team element because the aerodynamics are not the same in mountain biking. Yeah. It's a, it's a part of the sport now because people are going so fast. Um, but in the early 90s, mid 90s, that was like, you're just out in the forest by yourself, like drilling it. <laughs> you, you don't need, and I would like kind of get lonely sometimes, like, oh, there's nobody around to tell stories <laughs> to. Like, I guess I'll just keep going hard until, until they tell me until to stop. Until I find somebody. <laughs>
0: oh my God.
1: But it was thrilling to race mountain bikes. I really, I'm really glad that I did that. I'm really, uh, in, a lot of people stick to their road career or their mountain bike career and never try other disciplines, but I'm very happy that. That I did that, and now I, I ride mountain bikes whenever I can, and not as incompetent as when I started.
0: <laughs> well, also the riding's a lot different out here, right? So mm-hmm. you're riding over, at, over in over yeah. the dam and over yeah. in the headlands, and it's all like fire. It's so roads. much fun. It's and so it's awesome. Super flowy and beautiful, yeah. and you go to like Tamarancho or something.
1: And like the, so. the vistas, you know, oh, it's stunning. And Durango, like there is a million miles of world class mountain biking. Oh, yeah. it's just absolutely phenomenal.
0: So you're how much are you riding still now? You're riding. You ride on the rollers and training.
1: Yeah, I ride the rollers for maybe 33 minutes. That's my maximum. Maybe 44 if I, can't I can. I
0: ride rollers. I'm that idiot who like shoots off the front.
1: Well, if you if you put a video on your computer, like I can watch Gent Wavelgum and ride the rollers. Like I can watch the last 20 k's, and in 35, 45 minutes, I can get a little workout in and do my homework for. For uh, who's riding well for the next Peru Bay or <laughs> the next Liege vessel only. Yeah. That's smart.
0: <laughs> yeah, I started. I started using uh, Zwift and a Wahoo Trainer. It's a little bit safer. I'm not going to go shooting off the front.
1: Oh, the I gotcha. It's yeah, cool because I can, can
0: actually f- ride against. I can ride with my friends who are living in Chicago or LA or whatever, and yeah. we'll do training rides. So you actually speaking of that, you used to do roller races.
1: I did a few of those. Yeah,
0: like I, the head-to-head roller races in Durango. Yeah,
1: those were thrilling. I don't know if they still have that. But in Durango, we have every winter, uh, uh, winter fest And uh, it's called Snowdown. And it's a different theme every year. And there's events. There's like a trivia contest. Um, there's a big parade. <laughs> and there's roller races. So everybody packs in to the high school gymnasium, what used to be the high school, the old high school, the Smiley Building. And, and uh, it's just everybody's drinking beer and having fun. And I was stupid enough. To do that a few times because it's 15 minutes as far as you can go uh and it's very very painful excruciatingly painful and uh I mean people are like right next to you so you don't want to get too out of control and go flying off the rollers <laughs> into the crowd which <laughs> happens every year somebody's like ah <laughs> everybody starts cheering so you don't want to be that guy but uh i I like riding the rollers i you know I mean but like some guy, like Ted, uh, 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 Ben King, had a uh, broken his ankle, I believe, a couple of winters ago, and during his rehabilitation, I think he did eight hours on the on the trainer. Yeah, because one of the, I think Alex House did. I think it, he, Alex Howes, It could be seven. 'Cause thinking that they did eight hours and
0: sitting. One day? Yeah. Yeah. Straight I didn't my mind.
1: mind. It's I could never do that. An hour is the I think is the most I've ever ridden on the rollers. So. I
0: think I've done two hours on Swift.
1: Wow. That's
0: but, <laughs> but it was That's you impressive. can do specific, like you can do certain pros training rides. So like you can do a pair Roubaix specific one, you can do a climbing specific one, you can do a. So
1: mm. I mean, two hours is the max. You don't want. You don't like the rollers. I don't.
0: I'm <laughs> going to kill myself. I'm not.
1: Okay, this is why I have never gotten the the sort of fixed trainer. You know the the, cycle op There's millions of them where you where the front fork is bolted down and there's no way you can fall. And yeah. the bike won't tip over. Uh, I took a racing a little bit later. So to accelerate the efficiency on the bike, it was advised that you ride the rollers to smooth out your pedaling stroke. So I was playing catch up, you know, when I was started. Um, And so I was always focusing on my, you know, just that like to get that perfect, which turns out (laughs) is more biomechanical. It's more genetic, you know, and guys generate power in that 360 degrees at different points based on their physiology, more than how many hours they've spent on the rollers.
0: (laughs) It it probably gave you the best balance of your life. But
1: balance, it it was good. So that stuck with me. I recommend them, Chris. You might be surprised how smooth you're pedaling. Maybe is the I'll next come week. over and try with you. one day if you can catch me before I
0: go head first. Get a very
1: narrow room so that you. Can... <laughs> so what you're saying is get a long closet, yeah,
0: <laughs> and stick it in the closet and wedge the bike just in. Just so wide can... enough
1: for your shoulders.
0: <laughs> so, food-wise, in all your travels, where was your favorite country? With Whew. back back when you were racing, yeah, and now
1: I'll tell you, like we we have had a lot of fancy meals um and not i don't i just like love to sit down and dog down and drink and yeah, i love it so i'm not like trying to be a, a critic or do like um you know like comparisons like everything to me is like you've just cheated death everything <laughs> You just, you know, devil take the hindmost. You just push Satan a few inches further behind you. Every single one of those great meals, you know, but nobody lays it out like the Italians and being in those, like, it's almost like you're in a family situation, you know? So we like love to, to, and I, I've been remiss, but I'm going back to Italy this year and uh, going absolutely bananas. And, and, nice. and it, it's impossible to find bad food it's almost impossible to find bad food in italy and if i'm ever houseless i'm moving to modena because massimo butaro is has a soup kitchen
0: yes not <laughs> a bad place to go to a soup kitchen massimo. he's he's one of a kind right so talk about a brilliant brilliant it's just amazing what he's doing yeah. he's doing amazing things I and mean, massimo is such a wonderful man and uh, he's such a lovely family and everything that he's doing uh, feeding the public and, and really making people and
1: realize, La Francescana, food. his restaurant, is like one of the best restaurants on the yeah, planet. Yeah, I think
0: it's like, in the top five. It might be yeah. actually
1: the number one. I can't remember. So, anyways, like that's the that's like the gold standard, and yeah. it just trickles down from there. You can get a sandwich and a cup of coffee on the freeway at a gas station in Italy, and it's like,
0: oh, that's yummy. Why? Is I want that? five more. Why is it that? And it's the same thing. If you're in Japan, it's the same thing too. You're on the train, you can get the perfect tonkatsu sandwich, right? And the bread's perfect, and the meat's perfect, and it's crunchy, and there's the. Why can't we do that here? What's wrong? Like, why haven't we figured that out? It's the same thing. In France, a, we're in a, Spain, new,
1: a newer country. We're, we're, we're still new. we're still we're still figuring it out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're still
0: figuring a lot of things out.
1: We're evolving. Evolving.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you. Do you prefer wine-wise, whites, big reds? Mm. What's your favorite? No, I don't
1: like. I don't. You're think not. you are not you Napa has great whites and reds. Um, actually, some very good sparkling wines come from Northern yeah. California, also that maybe a little bit under people's radar. But Carneros, um, God, I've had some of the best bubbles.
0: I'm a bubbles anyway, freak. I love bubbles. Um,
1: but yeah, if it's tasty, I don't. I I love it. I, I mean people get carried away with uh the ratings and the limited availability. Um I don't I don't I try to uh, you know, just drink good within my budget.
0: <laughs> drink what you like. Which you can do. Yeah.
1: You know, you get you can get some bottles of Spanish red wine for less than fifty dollars. That are absolutely spectacular. Um and my cellar is full of those.
0: <laughs> That's and it's funny because I said to somebody the other day, they're like, well, what do you, what, what do you recommend? I said, drink what you like. Yeah. And that's I think a- that's a really important because people get lost sometimes when you start talking, using all this terminology. A lot of people don't quite grasp it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's palate's a little bit different. You yeah. may taste dark cherry. Somebody might taste blackberry. You know, you hear the terms, oh, this wine has such a beautiful leather aroma. <laughs> Somebody's like, What? What is yeah. that? You know, it, it confuses people. And Mike, the whole process is drink what you like. Drink what makes you happy.
1: And try a bunch of stuff till you yeah. find something that you really like. And, and then, the,
0: the whole, a glass program is there for yeah. you to learn yes. and to, to try stuff. Yeah.
1: Uh, it, it's been very, for me, it's been really, uh, I have a lot of free time. So <laughs> I've been able to study up on on different, and taste actually <laughs> in my travels, a lot of different types of wines and regions and styles and uh it's just awesome. I I love the whole that whole landscape is it's infinite. It goes on forever.
0: I um, think that's you know that's what makes it fun. All right, I'm going to ask a couple quick questions and then we're going to cut it quick. Okay. Butter or olive oil? Ooh.
1: I like olive oil um, to just have on food, but I prefer to cook with butter.
0: Okay. Parmesan or pecorino? Mm, golly,
1: gran la grana padana that chunky 15 year old like it's just like if you could get a a big giant cotton candy that was made out of heroin that would i would imagine i've never tried (laughs) that's what a good parmesan tastes like
0: it's amazing okay gummy bears Reese's peanut butter cups Reese's
1: Reese's all the way. I love Reese's. There's nothing like after three or four hours on the bike to stop at a gas station and get the big cup, get three of those and just like eat one immediately and then eat two in the next few miles as you, and then you're like back to normal, you're back like, Oh, I'm good. I can keep going.
0: Banana orange. I
1: would have to go with uh, a good orange. A good blood red orange from Sicily. There's nothing like it.
0: Wagyu or grass fed?
1: I would go Wagyu the the marbling, dude, the umami. that I mean grass fed too, that's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Sushi wise, mm. what's your one favorite piece?
1: God, you gotta have some uni in there, you know? Always. A little fresh dollop of uni uh, and some, you know, some of the perfect sushi rice. I mean, that to me is like the most delightful morsel. It just, it, yeah. I, and, I, and as far as like fish, that's a guy. I like the ocean trout a lot. Like a nice piece of that.
0: Um, I like surf clam. Which one? Surf clam. Oh yeah, I love the texture. Mm,
1: that's also that's a hard one. That's like there's so, <laughs>
0: there's so much. It's such a cool thing. Pasta or risotto? Oh
1: man, ah, I say pasta. It's so infinitely, you know, ev- it's so highly evolved now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Pastas, yeah. I, I bet ris- risotto is. I mean, if I like could. Line out my week, it would be, you know, five days pasta, but two days big fat risottos for sure. Okay,
0: kale or arugula.
1: Kale, I like kale. God,
0: so overboard.
1: Um, Kale's good. It's yummy. It's good. Fresh I mean, it's, kale right out of the garden. I know it's is, delicious.
0: It's just I like the pepper and arugula. I Trust me,
1: I eat I don't it. like arugula that much. If I'm honest. Uh-oh. It's too. It's. It, I know. It, that's. A, <laughs> Okay, on it's your... too bitter. It has too much bitterness. Oh,
0: come on! All right, on your frites, mayo or ketchup. Ah, I like
1: them. I like. You know what I like to do is dip one in ketchup and then just a tiny little bit of mayo. So just that is... I know you've been. It's in like Hel- 1, Thousand Island. In Belgian, enough, Belgian
0: <laughs> enough to know that's like all they want is mayo in there.
1: They wow. you can't. It's hard to find ketchup at yeah. a fries. Then they make great French fries. Maybe you know the best why. on the you planet. Know why? the di- double dipping and the yeah, temperature you know
0: the fat is. It's, it's horse fat. is that right yeah.
1: God, i didn't know that
0: yeah it's horse
1: fat. not all. okay
0: so you're going to be at camp i can never eat fruits <laughs> in belgium again yeah, you can no it doesn't matter horses
1: die right they, like, they die
0: that's okay. natural okay. so you're going to be with us in campo velo in april yes absolutely which we're looking forward to and uh looking forward to hearing your commentating coming up this year it's going to be a fun year i'm sure you're going to be really busy um, I'd like to give a shout out to Paul. Yeah, I know he was a very good friend of yours. And yeah, we
1: we plowed through the world for the last 20, 20 years as hard as we could. <laughs> and I'm I I want to thank his family for letting me have that time with Paul. He's a very special person, and the, the coverage, the understanding of our sport is not ever going to be the same without him.
0: It won't be. I agree, and uh, I just wanted to. Let you say that. Thank you. Have a few words for Paul. It's, uh, really, really affected a lot of people all around the world. I yeah, he's a really, really wonderful man.
1: Yeah, he's my soul brother, and uh, it's going to be. It. I've been. I've had some time now to absorb it, but it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through in my life. And, um, I mean, would just try to keep his spirit alive uh, by compassion, caring, and bringing everything you have to covering the races
0: awesome well bob thank you very much for taking time i know uh, you got a busy schedule and my nice pleasure going on and uh we're
1: just going to the recycling
0: nice so, <laughs> perfect
1: so we're, it, this is a good stopping off point stopping point. and, <laughs> and then, great uh, coffee
0: great coffee and uh look forward to having you in for dinner soon anytime cheers let's go uh let's go ride next week sounds great all right well, cheers man Bye. cheers
1: Bye.